0: Hello and welcome to the first lecture for History 304, uh, Hip Hop in American Society. Uh, this is Dr. Stuart Tully uh, here to, let's just get things started. Um, cool, so if you go to the uh, Moodle, we'll give you a shot uh, go to the PowerPoint for week one, Introduction to Hip Hop. Uh, today we're covering the early to late 1970s-ish, we're mainly covering the 70s. Uh, Also giving an introduction to the course. So go over one slide, you'll see a nice little collage of all sorts of hip-hop rap guys and gals. Um, Just a nice little collage. So this class is called Hip-Hop in American Society, and it's not just a history of rap music, although we'll be certainly talking a lot about that. That's kind of the framing device of this course. It's not a music appreciation course, so we're going to be listening to a lot of music and certainly talking about it. Nor is it just a debate about what rap music is within American society. Although we're going to be discussing that pretty much every time you meet in person. We'll be having a lot of debate, particularly when we get into the Hip Hop Wars book. That pretty much talks exclusively about kind of the good and bad perceptions of hip hop. Uh, What I do want you to focus upon in this class is the interplay. All right? Interplay between those three things. How is it that a genre of music has been able to remain popular and relevant for about 40-some-odd years now. Uh, Is it because it adapts so much, or is there something in American culture, and youth culture in particular, that's static? I mean, I actually want us to discuss that whenever we're in class. I mean, old-school rap is 47 years old. Um, The first rappers are well into their 60s. How is something like that kept up with youth culture, in ways that other genres really haven't. I mean, rock and roll has certainly developed and adapted over the years, but I don't think rock music music is still as on the pulse of youth culture as it was in the 50s or 60s. Um, You could maybe argue that with pop music, but pop music, I mean, that that also has kind of changed quite a bit. Also, can rap still said to be uh, black, quote-unquote, and young, quote-unquote? How has commercialization impacted all that? Those are questions I want you to think about. It's even kind of early, you know, um, you know, if, if the earliest rappers are well into their sixties and the genre's been around for know, forty some odd years as a commercial genre, forty-seven years in general, uh, you know, people have grown up with it. There are people, you know, an AARP who grew up with rap music. So how how has that kept up this? Um, idea that rap is still very much on the pulse of young America or young people in general. Likewise, um, you know, it's is it necessarily an African American genre or is it necessarily, you know, I mean, a lot of the audience of rap music is may not be black. So I want you to have an open mind this semester, a willingness to kind of express yourself. That's the main thing I wanted I want you to do, alright? Um, this will be a weird semester. Hopefully it's an uh, enlightening semester. Hopefully we learn a lot. But I will freely admit, this is going to be weird with the pandemic, and we're not going to be having the discussions as natural as I would like. I'm still going to try to have discussions, either through Zoom, or I really want to see if we can do it in person, but just be adaptable. All right? Everybody cool with that? So, good deal. Uh, A little bit about my background. In fact, something I want y'all to do whenever we discuss in class is, you know, what was your first interaction with rap music, first interaction with hip-hop? Uh, I'm assuming everybody here in this class is at least familiar with it and probably likes it. I mean, you don't have to be considered a huge fan to get into this class, but I, I-, I would hope that for nobody this is the first time that you've ever heard of rap music before. Um, uh, my personal history of rap music, um, I was probably, I mean, I remember hearing about rap music whenever I was like in elementary school. Um as, as as shameful it is to admit it, probably the first rappers I was familiar with were probably like Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer, who are not very, um, <laughs> they don't have much street cred. Uh, I was not really a big fan of either of them at the time. Uh, but they were the first ones I remember hearing about. I was like six or seven years old, whatever they are big. Uh, it wasn't until about middle school whenever I really started getting into it. Um, artists like Jay-Z, Jay-Z was a big one for me. Um, Outkast was pretty big, too. Uh, other guys we might talk about. Um, really, really, once we get into the late 90s, early 2000s, that's when I really started getting into it. And I really never got out of it. <laughs> it's, it's about articles I write and research I do. A lot of it's about rap music. I mean, that's a very big part of my career and my life. Is hip hop so that's just my history with it. I'll tell you more about it in prison. So, all right. So, we ready to go? All right, go over one slide. You are going to see the four pillars of hip hop. Uh, any discussion has to begin with this idea of the four pillars or the four elements. Some call it elements. Some call it pillars. Um, I, I generally call it the four pillars of hip hop. Uh, who decided these four pillars? Really, no telling. Nobody really knows where the, the you know the, the nomenclature came from. Uh, probably African Bombada, if I had to guess. Uh, probably some variation of Islam and five percenters. Um, Islam has five pillars of Islam. That's something pretty normal within um, Islam. So it's not too surprising that some of the early... Um, we're going to talk about that actually later in this podcast, about um, five percenter influence upon hip-hop. But it's probably not surprising that that's where they come from. Anyway, uh, if you're talking classically speaking classically speaking <laughs> uh, from an academic standpoint if you talk to hip hop purists they are going to say there are four pillars and the four pillars in no particular order are rapping slash emceeing uh DJing graffiti and break dancing break dancing slash b-boying uh some consider there to be a fifth pillar probably so it could be just like Islam um there are different variations about what would the fifth pillar be. Uh, the one I've heard said most often is fashion—the idea that you know your attire and the way that you dress can be a part of hip hop. Um, others say beatboxing can be a part of this. Um, Bombada and KRS One both say that it should be knowledge, like street knowledge, or just basically you know the way you know about rap music. Uh, the fifth, like I said, it, it's fairly. Debatable. Uh, the four people do agree on. Pretty much everybody agrees on the four pillars, four elements. Uh, they become popular at different times. Uh, the, the first and probably the primary pillar is DJing. Uh, if you talk to a hip hop purist, they would say that the DJ, you know, the guy spinning the records, is the most important part of, uh, of hip hop. Uh, however, that's kind of ebbed and flowed in time. Um, all these pillars have had their days in the sun at, at different points in time they're the most popular, most uh, well-known most uh, predominant of the four pillars uh, graffiti is certainly, you know, the idea of spray painting the size of a building predates hip-hop quite a bit but the way that it gets like really encompassed into hip-hop culture uh, dancing is also one that's popular kind of early it's still around, it's kind of become its own thing separate from hip-hop and rap music but it's, it's also one that gets popular fairly early. Uh, basically the gymnastic and kind of acrobatic parts of the dancing. Uh, theoretically the DJ is the one who's supposed to get most of the attention. and uh, The MC slash lyricist slash rapper is the one who's supposed to be giving attention to the DJ. Uh, however, that in time has changed. Generally now, the rapper slash MC gets the most attention. Uh, also, I should state forward, for the sake of this class, for the, just state for the record, I'm going to be using the terms hip-hop and rap interchangeably. I'm not the only one who does that. A lot of people do that. Uh, if, you, if you're talking strictly speaking, hip-hop is the broader culture. Um, rap is just the person rapping over the beat and the music. That being said, um, like I said, you're going to interchange rap and hip-hop. I'm going to interchange rap and hip-hop. Generally, when I say rap or hip-hop, I'm, I'm talking about rap music. Uh, the guy, you know, rapping over the beat, rapping over a song. Uh, so if I say it's a hip-hop thing or a rap thing, I'm usually meaning the same thing. Even though, strictly speaking, there are differences. Uh, when it just comes to a normal vernacular, people use them interchangeably. So there's a lot of different stories about who made hip-hop and when exactly. Uh, A lot of different people have claimed credit for it. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, But there's a few things that are pretty central, and and probably the biggest one is the Bronx. Uh, The Bronx, if you're you're unfamiliar with it, it's one of New York City's five boroughs. Uh, New York City is divided into five boroughs. Uh, Generally, when we talk about New York, we probably talk about Manhattan. However, the Bronx is one of the five boroughs of New York. And for the longest time, it was primarily rural. Um, the Bronx, not, not New York. Uh, New York City, um, you're generally talking about Manhattan. Like I said, that is definitely not a uh, rural area, at least not nowadays. Uh, but for the longest time, the Bronx was primarily rural. However, uh, during World War I, industrialization brought in more people and more attention. A lot more people came into the Bronx, it was mainly poor folks and also black folks, and just basically people in general who got pushed out of Manhattan for various reasons. Uh, it has a pretty good bit of factories, a lot of a uh, lot of manufacturing. It was a pretty low key place to live, however, fairly quiet. It's not the big city; it's the Bronx. You know, it's got more green space in this time period. Like you said, I'm talking like 19 teens. We're not talking any time around when hip-hop was, in, was came around, but talking about the early history of the Bronx. Uh, this kind of goes this way up until World War II. Up until World War II, the Bronx is a very, you know, a lot of manufacturing, a lot of factories. Uh, the problem is, after World War II, manufacturing starts moving away from the Bronx. Uh, various reasons. Uh, it started to get a little bit more crowded, and, um, manufacturing factories move around for quite a bit of different reasons this time period. Uh, There's also an influx of people from the Caribbean for a lot of different reasons. Uh, I'll get into those later, but a lot of different people from the Caribbean are now coming to the Bronx, uh, coming to New York City. A lot of them, like I said, are coming specifically to the Bronx. Uh, There's some immigration patterns going on here. but The main thing that's going on in the Bronx is a lot of white flight. Uh, with the loss of manufacturing jobs, with the loss of uh, kind of a white consumer base, um, this is white flight personified. Uh, the rural people, and some of the white people, are starting to move away from the Bronx, and it's causing white flight, and actually this is causing the Bronx to become worse and worse. Um, you know, the tax base is going down, there's not a lot of jobs, people don't have jobs, it kind of becomes underclass, and that sort of thing. And by the time we get into the 70s, if you go over one picture... The Bronx is really hurting tremendously. And it's representative of a lot of different issues that are going on across the country. It's not just the Bronx. You know, deindustrialization and white flight are not just happening within the Bronx. Uh, a lot of different places going on there. Um, they build it in a speedway, uh, like an interstate system that goes straight through the Bronx. That really decreases the home values, uh, makes companies less likely to want to build stuff there make people wanting less likely to stay there. Uh, In places like Watts and Detroit, those are other areas that are also going through similar urban blights. Uh, A lot of riots are going on in these places. Manufacturing is moving out of of all those places. White flight is occurring. So the Bronx really isn't anything special there. Uh, In general, I'm going to talk about this more in a second, there's a lot of backlash going on to the civil rights movement. Um, the Civil Rights Movement had had some success in legislation. You have things like the Voting Rights Act, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65. Those are issues which are fairly easily done just through legislation. But the problem with racial inequality in the United States is not just a latest legislative issue. It has to do with culture. It has to do with individuals. It has to do with wealth disparities and things like that. And the problem is... When it came to things like busing and schooling and economic opportunities, there's a lot of different things which aren't so easily solved. And there's definitely a backlash against the civil rights movement. I mean, even as early as the late 60s, when you get more to black power, and Dr. King is uh, talking more about income inequality, you start having, you know, quote-unquote, good Americans, uh, the silent majority, if you will, that's, that's the term that Nixon uses. In fact, that's the reason Nixon is able to come into office in 68 is from this kind of anti-civil rights backlash. Uh, there's just a whole lot of disillusionment going on everywhere. Uh, in the Bronx, there are apartments being burned quite a bit. Basically, uh, unscrupulous landlords would uh, charge people illegal rents. And then they would burn the building, claim it was abandoned, and and collect the insurance money. Uh, That was happening quite a bit in the Bronx. Um, You can see in this picture right here, basically like kind of a decrepit place in the Bronx. It's an old abandoned apartment complex. Um, Places are falling apart. They're not being replaced. Uh, The Bronx is one of the poorest places in the entire country. It's just awful all around. It, It just seems to be the poster child of like cities aren't working, industrialization is you know, moving around. There, there are poor people that are caught there that really aren't getting out of that. But there were still people who were living there. There's still a lot of people. Uh, remember I said a lot of Caribbean uh, immigrants, a lot of African Americans, a lot of poor people, uh, non-white people, non-middle class or upper class white. There are never too many upper class people in the Bronx. But people who are... Still there, who don't have the opportunity to leave. And that is kind of the status quo of the Bronx in the early 70s, where in 1973, a young girl in the Bronx named Cindy Campbell wants to make money for school. It's it's early August, uh, school's coming up. She wants to raise some money, she wants to buy some more, more school clothes, she wants to buy some more school supplies. And she decides to le- lean upon her older brother for support. Uh, her older brother, his name is Clive, Clive Campbell. And the Campbell family, they are immigrants from Jamaica to the Bronx. Remember how I said uh, immigrants are coming into the Bronx in this time period? A lot of Caribbean influence, a lot of Caribbean immigrants. Uh, Clive Campbell is one of these. In fact, his parents and he go to um, the Bronx, they move to the Bronx whenever Clive is 12 years old. I want to say Cindy is about 8 years old or so. She's kind of young in this time period. Um, He's known for his physique. Uh, Clive is known for working out quite a bit. He's known for having big muscles. Uh, He gets the name Hercules as his nickname. Now, he also loves music. Now, when he's still in Jamaica, while he's still living in Jamaica, he listens to dancehall music quite a bit. Uh, He also listens to toasting. We're going to talk about that when we talk about musical influences for a second. Uh, When he comes to the U.S., he kind of keeps up this love of, you know, older music, uh, love of this Jamaican music. Uh, He likes obscure records, likes funk records, Um, not really pop music, um, not really the proto-disco stuff that's coming out in this time period. He's known for having a very broad taste in music. And in particular, he likes to loop certain parts of the song over and over so you could hear the breakdown. Uh, He calls this technique the merry-go-round. Where basically um, the ideas in funk music or early disco music, uh, there's the best part of the song, kind of the instrumental breakdown where the guy's not singing, you know. Whenever the band's not, uh, whenever the singer's not singing, it's just the breakdown. Uh, very, you know, famous ones come from James Brown records. Kind of that, you know, eight to ten second where they just really rock it out, really break down. You know, the drums and the instrumentals go crazy. It's a section that people want to dance to. Now, what Clive does, which is a little bit different, is that he is able to use two turntables. Now, he does not invent the two turntables. That's something that, um, you know, DJs and people playing records, people in clubs in Manhattan have been doing quite a while to switch between songs, basically you kind of have, like, the seamless fade-in, fade-out. That's not a new thing. Uh, what Clive does, which is a bit different is that he uses two records of the same song and switches between that breakdown over and over. So basically, you make those same 8 to 10 seconds last 5, 10, 15 minutes. This is very popular for people who want to dance, people who want to like hear the best part over and over. Uh, he, later on, well, we'll get into that later, uh, just because when you're talking about early hip-hop, there's a lot of borrowing between uh, different people. It's kind of hard to say definitively who does what first um, who can take credit for stuff because there's a lot of interplay a lot of talking between people so he's known for doing this Uh, He mainly went by himself he doesn't really perform outside he doesn't really play his records outside but his sister wants cheap entertainment and her brother is the cheapest entertainment because he just wants to play his music and so they decide to host a party in their apartment's rec room if you go over one slide you will see the original flyer. Um, it's actually, looks like it's on an index card. They posted this around this their apartment complex. Uh, basically, as you can see, um, this is the back-to-school jam at uh, 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the rec room, basically a first-floor rec room in the apartment complex on August 11th, 1973. So probably, the, maybe the day you're listening to this, this will actually be hip-hop's 47th birthday. So hurry for that. Uh, you know, it lasts from 9 p.m. to 4 a.m. 25 cent admission for the ladies, 50 cents for the fellas. Given my cool DJ Herc, it's a school still out party. Uh, with special guests Coco, Sydney C., Clark K., and Timmy T. I have no idea who those four people are. Uh, they might just be people in the neighborhood. Uh, not really sure who's going on with that. And so, this is pretty much hip hop's birthday. This is the first time if there's ever a date that rap begins, this is the date. You know, at 1520 Central Avenue in the rec room of the apartment, August 11th, 1973, DJ Hurt gives this party. All right? He starts playing his records. At first, he's playing the pop songs that people want to hear, but he's like, hey, guys, I'm going to start playing my own stuff. I'm going to start playing, you know, the the breakdown of this James Brown song or uh, Mago King or Baby Huey. Like, all this... Kind of older '60s records, kind of breakdown that he's really, really pushing it, and it's quite popular because nobody's heard anything like this. You know, it's basically they they live for the f- five seconds of these songs, and now the f- best five seconds is being looped over and over again, so it lasts for pretty much an entire party. And he's known for bringing two things to rapping. All right, when you talk about the things that cool DJ hurt, I mean. Yeah, DJ Cool brings the rapping really two things. Uh, the first thing is the idea of looping a song over and over. Uh, looping, sampling, that sort of thing, that's something very well-known in rap music. Uh, certain songs, certain drum beats have been sampled hundreds if not thousands of times in different rap songs. Uh, the second is basically kind of talking slash rapping over those sections, now, Cool DJ Hurt, DJ Cool Hurt is not the first rapper by any section. Uh, he's pretty much toasting. Uh, toasting is a way of kind of talking over music. Um, I have a sample of, of Jocko Henderson. Uh, basically, if you check a moodle, it's a little thing. Basically, it's not really rapping. It's not really musical. He's not really saying anything. He's basically saying, like, hey, here's some attention. Like, hey, Cool Cats, listen to this fun thing. Uh this is much older. This comes from like disc jockeys on the radio in America, uh, jive talkers and Jamaican music, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. It's, however, brought to a new format. These two things pretty much form the backbone of hip-hop, uh, form the backbone of rap music, of future rap music. Looping a sample and also kind of talking over the beat. Not really singing, even though more modern rap gets into more singing than rapping uh, than talking. Kind of rhythmic talking, if you will. That's what he brings to it. And this party is a hit. And Campbell becomes much more in demand throughout the Bronx. He's still mainly doing the party circuit. Um, you know, House parties, rec rooms. Uh, later on, they start doing it outside in parks. They start like breaking into uh, light poles so they can hook up their sound systems to it. Uh, he's a kid, by the way. I should mention that. Uh, Clive... This time period, Campbell. Uh, DJ Kool Herc, he's about 18, 19 years old. He's a very young man with this going on. Uh, it's very much a youth movement and very demonstrative of the South Bronx. Um, a lot of kids, like, they don't have a lot of educational or vocational opportunities, particularly vocational opportunities, because all of the um, factories and things had left out of the Bronx. It's a very economically depressed place. So there is a chance to make something out of nothing. It's very entrepreneurial spirit you have going on here. I mean, the fact that Cindy Campbell is charging people fifteen to twenty, uh, sorry, fifty cents and twenty cents for uh, a back-to-school party because she wants to buy clothes, and Campbell starts growing in popularity and influence, and other people start uh, really taking his sound almost immediately. Uh, cool DJ Herc is considered the first, you know. Founding godfather of hip hop. We talk about the three godfathers of hip hop, you're going to be reading their stuff. Um, he's considered the first, mainly because he has a first party. There's other people you could say are influences. DJ Hollywood's one of them, you're going to read about him. Uh, however, DJ Kool Herc is generally considered the first in all of this. Uh, if you go over one more slide, you're going to see the second of the founding fathers, uh, founding godfathers, uh, Grandmaster Flash. Uh, Joseph Sadler is a, one of those individuals who had heard of Campbell and wants to do it on his own. Uh, pretty much the main barrier becoming a DJ in this time period is having a sound system. Uh, buying records, getting records, making sure you have the best obscure records. You're going to be worried about how they protected their records in this time period. But it's mainly, do you have a sound system? Do you have you know big speakers? Do you have turntabers? Do you have records? That's the main barrier to entry to becoming a DJ. Um, Sadler, I should mention, DJ um, Grandmaster Flash, he's also an immigrant. Uh, he comes from Barbados. So once again, we have a, a more uh, Caribbean immigrant influence. I mean, hip-hop, even though it's a very African-American genre, it's also very much an immigrant genre. Uh, Grandmaster Flash brings some changes to it. Uh, his big changes... First of all, uh, not only does he have two turntables, he switches between songs. Now, Campbell would start doing this, too, almost immediately after he hears uh, Grandmaster Flash doing it. So, theoretically, he could switch between one song and another. Uh, He gets into, like, you know, beats per minute, making sure the beats per minute kind of overlap. Uh, You could make a more dynamic set. Remember, uh, DJ Cool Herc would generally do one song for several minutes, Uh, Grandmaster Flash would start playing between different songs, and switching between the two of them, kind of fading them in and out at the same time, but he's still looping. I Remember, DJs in Manhattan at different clubs would switch between one song to another song in completion. However, Grandmaster Flash is the first one who really starts switching between two songs at the same time to make a different, more dynamic-sounding breakdown beat section. Uh, The other thing he also does in kind of the same vein which technically he doesn't do, but he perfects, is record scratching. Uh, the idea being that basically you can scratch the record to go back to the, to the beat, uh, to the breakdown. So you don't have to stop the music, you don't have to switch to another song, you just scratch it back. Uh, Grandmaster Flash is not the one who invents this. That actually belongs to Grandmaster Theodore. Uh, however, Grandmaster Flash has a lot more flash with it. Uh, pardon the pun, that's this his name. He's known for being a very flashy individual, has a lot more uh, skill and style with it. Now, the other innovation that Grandmaster Flash brings, if you go over one slide, is he is the first one that has a dedicated crew that does his rapping. Remember, uh, DJ Cool Hurt did have some rapping himself. That wasn't his main shtick. Later on, he would add more permanent MCs. However, Grandmaster Flash is the first one who really has a hardcore dedicated crew Uh, Hence the name Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Grandmaster Flash does rap a little bit, not that often. Generally, he's just DJing. And two members of this crew are the first one, are the first to come up with really two important contributions. Uh, The first one is Melly Mel. Uh, Melly Mel is the first MC to really rap as we know it. uh, Make more complex rhymes. Um have more jokes, have more punchlines. A lot more complex than just, like, one or two little couplets, and then going back to the music. You know, Melly Mel's first one to really do more dynamic, longer raps as we know it. Uh, Another member of this crew, Cowboy, is the first one to come up with the term hip-hop. Now, that is something which is very highly debated. Who comes up with the term hip-hop? DJ Hollywood says he does. Other people say that the first one to come up with the term hip-hop... Cowboy is got as good of a claim as any for this. Also, uh, they're some of the first to really start battling other crews. However, battling in this time period is very different than battle rapping as we know it now. Um, it's more about who can rock the best party. Um, we're going to find out next week when we talk about the uh, Cool Moe versus uh, Eddie Starsky I'm sorry, Steve Starsey. Battle about how battles were different, but I just want you to know: for early rap battles, it wasn't as competitive with each other. Like they aren't really making jokes about each other, or like talking about their style. It's not really the um, insult-based rap battles of this time period. It's more who could rock the party better, who could get people to scream the loudest, who can you know, who can make the ladies say yeah, that type of thing. Not really insulting each other. Uh, they're also some of the first to make battle rapping a real highlight basically the idea of competing between the two of each other uh, this also happens a lot with breakdancing breakdancing is breakdance battles basically instead of fighting each other you start uh, battling each other uh, through dancing uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five are the first really big rap crew prior to 1979 uh, they have regular gigs at nightclubs Whereas most other DJs are just doing rec rooms, high school parties, or like you know at the park with their sound system hooked into a uh, to a light post. Um, Grandmaster Fashion and the Furious Five were some of the first to get regular gigs at nightclubs. There is definitely an element of class in early hip hop. Uh, nightclubs in Manhattan and stuff; those were those were like disco clubs. That's for the more educated um, people with more money. Older folks went to. Uh, they thought of hip-hop as a kid's thing. However, Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five are able to get a lot more attention than that. Mm. And they're some of the first that have clubs. Um, yes, DJ Hollywood is probably the first real club rapper, but you'll read more about him. He's a little bit more complex than that. Uh, the final of the three godfathers of hip-hop is Bombada. Uh He is considered a major figure in early hip-hop. He is one of the three founders. However, his contributions are more ethereal. They're more about the, the mindset and the spirit, if you will, of hip-hop than actual sonic uh, changes. Uh, he's born Lance Taylor. Uh, he's in the Bronx, born in the Bronx. Um, a, lot of, a lot of hullabaloo about his actual birth date. Uh, Wikipedia says he was born in 1957, which makes him younger than DJ Koolherk. However, he's almost certainly older than DJ Kool Herc. He always seemed like an older statesman. Um, no real telling when he was born. Probably mid fifties, maybe mid to early fifties. Uh, like I said, his age is a closely guarded secret. He's kind of enigmatic ig- in that time in, that's, in that sense. Uh, the immigrant thing also is here too. Uh, he was born in the Bronx. However, he was born to Jamaican and Barbadian parents basically his mom and dad both um, immigrated from either Jamaica or Barbados, and they settled in the Bronx and they had him. Now something I didn't mention earlier when i talk about Bronx life is gang life. Uh, This is not too surprising. There have been a lot of sociological studies about why young men or why young people join gangs. A lot of it is just for a sense of identity and belonging and where they don't feel like they have it. So it really shouldn't come as any surprise that the South Bronx, because of all the economic depression, because of the you know, all the outside factors making it not a great place to live, a lot of young people are drawn into gang life. And Africa bombada young Lance Taylor in this time period, he is no exception. He gets involved in a gang fairly early. Um, there's a lot of urban legends that he belonged to. He was the founder and, and runner of the biggest gang in all of the South Bronx. Uh, that's probably a tale that has grown in the telling. Um, he was a, a large, still remains a very large individual. Um, you know, very imposing figure, very tall, very broad. That being said, though, um, and he he might not have been the biggest gang leader of all of the Bronx, but he definitely had a following. Definitely had a big people behind it. Um, that being said, though, he wasn't just in gang life. He did he does go to school. Uh, because when he's a teenager, he sees the movie Zulu. Now, if you haven't heard of the movie Zulu, that's normal, most people haven't. Uh, it's a 1964 movie, basically about the British army fighting the Zulu. Um, the Zulu are not the heroes of this movie. This is very much a Eurocentric, uh, British-centric film where you know, they're fighting the dastardly savages, and that sort of thing. Uh, very, very... White supremacist in, in that sense, very Eurocentric. However, he sees the movie and sees the idea that like these Zulus are united together. These these black people in South Africa are fighting the British together. They're they're united as one tribe, one people, and they're giving the British a pretty strong fight. You know, they're they're taking it to the British, even though they are wearing you know, next to nothing and that sort of thing. They're they're definitely a threat to the British. And, and basically, uh, he also gets a chance when he's in high school to go to South Africa for some reason. Uh, there's talk that he might have won a trip, or this might be a tall tale in that. But he says he's able to meet some Zulu, and he really feels drawn to the Zulu mindset. He's like, maybe this could be something that we could unify all black people together. You know, maybe this could become the new game. And then he hears Campbell somehow, and he becomes convinced that maybe hip-hop can be the median for this new message. He renames his cohorts the Zulu Nation, and he starts DJing himself. Uh, he is able to get a very impressive sound system. He gets his name, Bambata for the, you know, the name, for the way his sound is, like Bambata, like boom, boom, that sort of thing. He also gets some DJs, uh, sorry, he's a DJ, MCs and dancers to kind of help with the whole show. Uh, that's, that's his main contribution to it is kind of the spirit behind it uh, he doesn't really bring that much technological advances to hip hop uh, but he does bring a lot of culture and ideology to what would be- later become hip hop culture and he kind of gives it its spirit in a sense uh, he does a lot of stuff mainly around New York he's mainly known as for the size of his crew he kind of has his territory around the South Bronx uh, he doesn't really record until much later. In fact, that's something kind of all three three of these guys have in common. Uh, DJ Cool Hurt never really records. Um, he actually he doesn't do very well. He, he gets on drugs for a while. Um, actually, is addicted to, I believe it's either cocaine or crack for quite a while. He, he does get clean nowadays. Uh, he doesn't really put out a record until fairly recently. African Mombata's first record is not until the early 80s. Uh, we're we're going to talk about why that, you know, why early hip hop guys don't do records in a little bit, actually next class. Uh, but like I said, he is more about the spirit of hip hop, more about like kind of this like pan Africanism idea of hip hop. Uh, he is a controversial figure, particularly now. Um, around 2015, 2016, a whole bunch of accusations came out about him uh, molesting young boys and children within the Zulu Nation. Pretty much throughout the 70s and 80s. Um, he's never really responded to them, but they were credible enough for him to resign as head of the Zulu Nation, which was an organization that he founded. Um, he is a very. He's not very much an insider in rap music anymore. A lot of it is the accusations about it. I mean, there were time wherever, like, he, D, uh, DJ Cool Herc, and. Um, Grandmaster Flash to do interviews. In fact, you are going to be reading one of their interviews together, and maybe do little concerts and stuff. Um, he's really disappeared after his accusations. Um, we're going to talk about that later when we talk about um, sexism and stuff within hip hop. How do you, how do you rectify all that together? And with African Mabata, that's definitely the the case because. The entire time he's doing this stuff with hip hop, there's a lot of credible accusations that he's not behaving in a very good fashion. So that said, that's Africa Mabata. Uh, let's talk more about musical origins. Uh, there's a lot of musical and um, cultural origins for hip hop. I mean, even though this comes from you know the South Bronx, from Caribbean immigrants in the late '70s, uh, sorry, early '70s. This is not the only place where rap music comes from. There's a lot of different things. Uh, if you go over one slide, you will see my picture of Rudy Ray Mora's Dolomite because a lot of the stuff I'm going to be talking about doesn't have easy pictures, so I just went with Dolomite because he's not the most important, but <laughs> he's probably the easiest one to get a picture of. So, the earliest predecessor of rap music within the black community, within the African American community, is what's called either toasting. Or the dozens. Uh, those are theoretically two different things that have a lot of similarities, a lot of overlap. Uh, toasting is—it's not like really toasting, like for a drink, but it's basically the way these these people are talking in a very poetic manner. Uh, Lost poets are probably a good example of that. Uh, it's kind of hard to find, but you know when you hear it, the idea that like you know the they're talking with this rhythm and the kind of the, the rhyming of it. Uh, think about something like the way Muhammad Ali talks sometimes, like, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, you know, that sort of stuff. I'm too pretty, that 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 sort of thing. This kind of speed talking, some might call it jive talking, kind of talking quick, talking, let it be known, kind of rhyming. It definitely has a little bit of a rhythm to it, kind of talking oneself up or talking somebody else up. Uh, likewise, uh, The Dozens. Uh, the Dozens is something you've probably never heard it called, The Dozens, but you're definitely familiar with. Uh, this has been around. In fact, we don't even know where the term "dozens" comes from, because it's it's like slave days, like fresh off the boat, slave days. The dozens have been around. Uh, this probably even goes back to Africa. Uh, there are instances of griots in um, in West Africa, kind of having these these type of uh, dozens sessions. Basically, in the to put it in the most basic way possible. Two people take turns insulting each other in creative ways. That's the dozens. Basically, whenever you start insulting each other and you're trying to come up with the most creative, clever, fun way of insulting each other. Um, your mama jokes. That that was that was something that was popular when man, y'all were like really small children with when that show your mama was on TV uh, was on MTV. But I'm I'm sure you all know it where you know people just kind of go back and forth insulting each other. Uh, it's called the dozens. It it's been around for forever within the African American community. Very easy to see how that turns into rap battles. that's, that's pretty obvious. Uh, toasting is generally a solo affair. You generally don't go against somebody. It's also been around to get uh, forever. Uh, I mentioned Dolomite because if you listen to like Rudy uh, Rudy, Rudy man, hard to say that Rudy Ray Moore do his Dolomite stuff, do his Dolomite shtick. Um, just, you know, YouTube it or whatever doing Dolomite, the way he talks the way he talks about like, this, this bad cat Dolomite, do-do-do-do-do I'm Rudy Ray Moore Da-da-da-da-da. like, y- you're gonna hear a lot of early hip-hop in that uh, same thing with the way Muhammad Ali would talk uh, Black Preachers, that's another thing, The kind of the cadence of Black Preachers um, not only really Martin Luther King but, you know, you might hear kind of rhymey stuff going on in a lot of sermons that sort of thing like that Uh, Another one, if you go over one more slide, you will see Iceberg Slim. Iceberg Slim is another thing you can include. Um, He was a pimp in the 1960s who published a book of his life, uh, pretty much the story of his life. uh, They're pimp narratives. Basically, he's a pimp. He talks about, like, here's what it's like being a pimp. And he kind of iterates this whole bad man, like, I'm, I'm such a bad guy, and here's how I'm able to trick people into doing stuff, and I'm so smart, and I'm able to get women and money. Uh, Shtick like that, that's been around for forever. The idea of the kind of trickster hero. Uh, That's not just within African American culture, that's within all sorts of cultures. Um, Examples in African American culture, you you might go back to like the Brer Rabbit stories, that sort of thing, Uncle Remus stories, where uh, they're able to convince people by being slick or being uh, smart and clever. Uh, Iceberg Slim shows pimping is fun. It's a gritty life. Uh, the, this book is very popular. It goes around all over the place. Uh, another immediate influence on this, it's uh, Jamaican C- Caribbean music. Um, dance hall music. Dance hall music, Jamaican dancehall hall music. It uh, influenced a lot of these early godfathers. Uh, you also have ska music. Now, when you're thinking of ska music, you're thinking like Guy Ferretti with cheesesteak bites. No. Uh, early ska music, we're talking like the 1960s ska music, It predates reggae. It's actually what reggae comes from. Um, Early ska music, it's got horns. It's got people kind of talking over it in a more rhythmic way. They're not really singing over it. They're kind of talking rhythmically. Um, It's hard to find examples of it because a lot of this wasn't recorded because it's a live performance and a lot of live performances in this time period weren't linked to being recorded. Uh, Remember, in places like Jamaica, they don't have a lot of recording equipment and people don't, a lot of the big recording companies don't see why it might be needed to do this or that there might not be a market for it. Uh, Jamaica also have what's called jive talkers. Uh, Don't YouTube jive talkers because you're going to get the Bee Gees and that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, They're talking in jive, kind of doing that toasting thing over um, ska beats in a manner that's almost identical to rap music. Like I said, it's Kind of hard to find examples of this because a lot of this wasn't recorded, but you're going to hear like you know this kind of dunka, 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 dunka music. They're playing horns or whatever, and you hear somebody kind of talking over in the background. And I'm not going to try to do an accent or anything, but uh, just just maybe YouTube early ska music, like '60s ska music. You might hear some of them, and this is in a manner almost identical to rap. Uh, another influence is DJs, like radio DJs, disc jockeys. Uh, prob- the one I give you a sample of is Jocko Henderson. Um, just think about 1950s, 1960s DJs. You know, you have, hey, you cool cats and hats, hold on to your hats. It's time for the such and such. Um, Howling Wolf, he's a white guy and, um, in California, does this. A lot of different DJs. Just picture like 1950s DJ, black and white Let's be real. It's Black DJs, or my guys copy them later, um, who kind of do this kind of like, you know, fast talking, rhyming as they're introducing songs. Like, you know, hey, you cool cats and kittens. That's Carol Baskets. Hey, you cool cats and kittens. But you get the shtick. You get the shtick. Listen to Jocko Henderson. There's a little YouTube clip of him talking. This is also an early predecessor to rap music. Uh, the most immediate early predecessor to rap music, one that a lot of rappers nowadays might pretend wasn't influential, but it definitely was particularly with the early marketing, is disco. Uh, particularly in the later days of the 1970s and early days of the 1980s when rap starts to get promoted, we'll talk about that more later next class, uh, disco is very popular at first, and a lot of rappers want to piggyback off its popularity, particularly the record labels. Uh, rap and disco also overlap quite a bit because of the influence on technology to create the music. Uh, their party genres, starting on, they really emphasize promoting dancing. Disco, um, you know, it's it's not the BGS, it's not John Travolta. It actually gets to start with a lot of LGBTQ, specifically gay individuals. A lot of Black, Latino, uh, non-white individuals start out with disco. It gives people a chance to do the sort of thing. Uh, really gets a lot more exposure. Uh, disco also isn't necessarily upon the live performance. Uh, I'm not saying there are no live disco bands. But discos, by its very nature, the term disco uh, implies the fact that this is recorded music being played in a place where you can dance and have a good time. Uh, Disco is very popular. It becomes unpopular. We'll talk about the disco backlash in just a little bit. But a lot of the early rap beats, a lot of the early rap personas, a lot of the early rap way that people were dressed is very much a disco thing. And that's something that a lot of rap would later on try to set distance itself from, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. So, African American status quo. This one's going to be more complicated, but you have to understand the state of African American society prior to hip-hop. Um, African Americans are not monolithic by any stretch, but What's going on for black America in this time period is really pushing the basis of where hip-hop becomes so broad. And if you want to understand how it becomes so broad, how it becomes pretty much like the dominant art form for youth culture, not just black black youth culture, but just youth culture in general, um, you have to understand what's going on in this time period. So the civil rights movement um, of the 1960s, you know, Dr. King, he has a dream, all that good stuff, it's really splintered. It's not the quote-unquote cohesive whole it was in the 60s, early 60s. Uh, We're talking about the time we get into the 70s, or late 60s. It's not the cohesive whole. Uh, Now, it's a bit of a misnomer to say that it was ever cohesive in the first place. There's always a lot of different groups. But it really starts to splinter. Um... You know something you may not be aware of if you've had my black history class, you are but after Dr. King dies after Dr. King is assassinated in 1968 there's a lot of different riots in fact, I think four or five of the biggest riots in U.S. history are race riots after Dr. King is killed and a lot of these riots, they're in places that make people think maybe this whole quote unquote negro problem won't be solved very easily you know, they're realizing that just giving people the right to vote or you know getting rid of civil, you know, rights discrimination is not going to be enough. There are deeper questions that don't have easy answers. Likewise, because of deindustrialization and white flight, urban centers become blighted and they become seen as and this is the important word here irredeemably poor slash black. There's a coalition between black and poor. There's this assumption that if somebody is black, ergo, they must be poor because they're in these poor, depressed areas. And it's kind of one of these self-fulfilling prophecy things. When you get into redlining, deindustrialization, don't give uh, services to these individuals because they're bad places, and then when they don't get these services, they become worse places, justifying why you don't do it in the first place. And the issues that cause the civil rights movement are still existing. Um, Equality is still a very big issue in this time period. You could argue nowadays it's still a big issue. Access to good schools and job opportunities. Wealth issues. Discrimination. Resistance from white people. Although the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Acts were passed, everything else was a lot more complicated. If you go over one slide, um, this is probably a pretty good example. The Boston busing riots. Uh, Boston, if you're unfamiliar with Boston, is nowhere in the South. You know, it is it is further north of New York. It is in New England. It is in Massachusetts. Boston is having some issues when it comes to busing, um, basically school busing. The idea that you know, people in South Boston, uh, Southeast, as you might call them, uh, they're very Irish, very white, and they're also really racist, like really racist and there is a lot of protest against the idea that African Americans are going to be bused over to these schools because it's uh, for desegregation purposes a lot of not my backyard thing uh, this is a fairly famous picture of the riot where you see somebody about to looks like stab another guy with the American flag um, this happens in the 70s, this is early 70s when this is going on this is after, you know, I have a dream. This is after, theoretically, the march on Washington had solved racism and, you know, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So everything else is a lot more complicated than, like, the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act. And you're having all these backlashes. And like I said, um, black people are not never been a monolithic entity. I mean, there's always sorts of different people doing different things. But this time period is especially disunified. Um, the old line of respectability doesn't work. Um, basically, early civil rights movement, they all talked about, like, you know, wear your Sunday best, have churchy music, you know, ministers are going to be the ones to lead us. Uh, that really didn't work. There's more black power, but black power, you know, Black Panthers, that also is getting a backlash. Uh, places outside the South, like Boston, are super resistant to black folks. Um, for instance, when he's still alive in the late 60s, Dr. King goes to Chicago, and he's like, yeah, Chicago's got a lot of like race problems there. He says in some ways it's worse than the South. Um, de facto racism is very hard to get rid of. Uh, there's two types of racism and segregation. There's like de jour, basically by law, segregation, then you have de facto, which is just by happenstance. And that is the case in a lot of northern American cities. You know, they may not have laws on the books that enforce racism, but they have, like, tradition and practice. Um, I'm sure y'all could talk about a lot of things that, you know, I'm not going to get into that, but you can probably think of some examples that still exist or maybe you might have experienced, but that's that. And also, there's really no one taking... The charge for civil rights. I, I'm not saying that Dr. King was ever the one guy behind civil rights, but this kind of splintering after you know you have, Sophie Carmichael doing his own thing, Black Panther Party coming around, um, the whole backlash of Richard Nixon and the Silent Majority. There's a lot of victories for civil rights. Of, of course, you know people are doing great on an individual basis. You know more job opportunities um, in the government sector is kind of where you get the black middle class from. That being said though it's very disunified. And there's also a real sense of disillusionment especially towards young people. Young black people are kind of seen as the older generation who really fought for all the civil rights, they're like, what are all these young people doing? You know We're the ones we fought for. These are the people that we fought and we we sacrificed for, and this is how they're paying us? Uh, There is a lot of backlash early on against hip-hop and and a lot of confusion about it by older, more respectable, quote-unquote, African-Americans. Don Cornelius. Uh, Don Cornelius is the guy behind Soul Train, uh, the TV show. Um, First time... Any rapper is on for Soul Train. He's like, I, I don't know what these kids are into. I don't get it, but whatever. Uh, Barry Gordy, who's the guy behind Motown, whenever he first starts hearing rap music, I mean, he has a chance to get on the ground floor. He's like, this isn't type of my type of music, you know. Barry Gordy is really appealing to a a, a universal middle class aesthetic, and there's this new music that's like defiantly black and defiantly underclass. He just doesn't get it. And there's that's part of a larger backlash against hip-hop that, like, you know, by the civil rights movement, people, that, like, this is what we sacrifice for. I mean, most of these young hip-hop... Most of these hip-hoppers, you know, your cool DJ hurts, your DJ cool hurts. I always get it. I, I always mess with his name. I'm sorry. You know, um, African Mabata. You know, all the early rap guys. You know, Russell Simmons later on they're very young children whenever the Civil Rights Movement is going on. They're born in the late 50s, early 60s. So in the height of the Civil Rights Movement, they're like five, six years old. They're not marching. They're not demonstrating. They're the ones that people are marching and demonstrating for. They're the ones like, hey, we're trying to sacrifice for a better life, and then once they come to their teenage years, this is how they repay us. Uh, You kind of have the same sort of backlash in the 1950s amongst people who fought in um, World War II against the Baby boomers and rock and roll. This is something that's going on since the the dawn of time. But you really have that backlash against, not only backlash, but kind of confusion and kind of disrespect towards hip-hop by the Civil Rights generation. Now, another African-American thing that really needs to be mentioned when it comes to origins of hip-hop is Five Percenters. Um, This is an offshoot of the Nation of Islam, which in turn is a sort of offshoot of Islam. Um, I don't think Islam would ever claim the Nation of Islam, but the Nation of Islam claims Islam. Uh, Five Percenters are kind of its own thing, they kind of offshot off of the Nation of Islam. It's a very, very Afrocentric belief system. Uh, The 5%ers take their name from the concept that they believe that 85% of the world's population is blind and quote-unquote uncivilized, and then 10% are the slave masters and rich people who screw everybody over, for lack of a better term, and then finally are the 5% from which they take their name are the poor righteous teachers. Um, they basically say that basically, you know, African Americans, you also get into the black Israelites in this time, in this uh, thing, too. The idea that, you know, the Hebrews of the Bible were actually black people, and then white people kind of screwed them over, and that's a controversial thing in hip hop. If you've been paying attention uh, to anti Semitic stuff that's come out from hip hop in the past month or so, you probably heard about all this. I'm not going to get into all of it. Uh, however, five percenters, you know, they do believe that, um, you know, ten percent of the world, blue-eyed devils, that sort of thing. Kind of part of the Nation of Islam too. Five uh, percent of those go a lot further than the Nation of Islam, though. They're way more into mysticism. Uh, way more into things like math. Like they talk about their sacred numbers, uh, sacred language. Uh, numbers are really big in the um, in in uh, in five percenters. Like different numbers mean different things. Um, it's a lot. Of, a lot of overlap with Freemasonry, honestly. Uh, basically, the use of symbology and numerology, uh, language, that sort of shtick. Uh, like I said, a lot of overlap with Freemasonry in 5%ers. Uh, they're very big around New York in the early 1970s, and a lot of their vernacular and language and some of their beliefs has a very big impact on early hip-hop, if not necessarily their beliefs. Um a guy like KRS-One, if you've ever heard of him, he's really big into these concepts. Uh, Africa Mbata is also pretty big into this as well. Uh, neither are 5%ers explicitly. Um, you'll, you'll hear nowadays, uh, who else is big into this? Uh, Wu-Tang Clan does some of that. Uh, Jay-Z does some of it. Like If you, if you Google 5%er and, and, and rap, you're going to see Jay-Z. Uh, he has some of that in there, not too, too much. A group like the Wu-Tang Clan, or definitely KRS-One, has a lot more into it. Um, it's something that's more in the water than an actual belief system for more early rap guys. But the idea that, you know, righteous teachers and you know, numbers being a big deal into it, it's just something you need to be aware of with this type of belief system when it comes to early hip-hop. But the main watchword I would use to describe the status quo in this time period is disillusionment. Uh, Disillusionment is probably the biggest one just all around. You know, the people who are involved in the civil rights movement, they're disillusioned by the younger generation. Uh, The hip-hop generation, this younger generation, is disillusioned by the lack of job opportunities and urban blight. Um, That seems to be the general case for African Americans in this time period. Uh, My Dotson just jumped up on my lap, so here we go. Uh, The final thing we're going to talk about is about the American response to hip-hop. And I'm not going to lie, it takes a while before 1979. 1979 is generally when hip-hop expands from being just a thing in New York City, uh, mainly the Bronx and parts of Manhattan, to the entire country. Uh, Before 1979, the country really didn't know what to think about the genre if if it thought of it at all. It's, it's very much a regional genre. It's very much a genre in the Bronx. Um, yes, yeah, some Manhattan clubs do start booking a few DJs, but it's very localized. Um, those who do think of it, think of it as a fad or possibly something like Urban Blight. Um, and to be honest, rap is not the element of hip-hop uh, that gets the most attention at first. Uh, the first, if you actually look at the studies, if you look at like, the early press about it, you're going to be reading some of it, is uh, graffiti? Uh, graffiti is one of the ones that gets the most attention, mainly for negative reasons. Uh, mainly for not positive reasons. Uh, it's seen as crime, dirty, ugly, evidence of urban blight, or, you know, evidence of decay. People, when they see it, um, a lot of people outside of you know New York and stuff. Remember, graffiti is not a bit of in New York, but this kind of hip hop graffiti. It's seen as not art. It's seen as a distraction. It's seen as something ugly. It's seen as something that demonstrates just how far a great city has fallen down. Uh, the next thing that starts getting attention is breakdancing, uh, mainly for aesthetic reasons, because uh, it's neat to watch. Um, <laughs> it's a very athletic endeavor. Uh, when you get into guys like Crazy Legs, who start doing more, like, gymnastic stuff in it, it's uh, it's more impressive to watch, and then there's a breakdancing fad that goes around, like, every bar mitzvah junk in the late 70s actually even DJing is getting more attention than rapping at first because DJs are the ones who are kind of headlining the clubs Uh, like I said rap purists say that um, the DJ is the most important part of the whole hip hop performance and a rapper should never have more of a spotlight than a DJ and that will go away in time Um, nowadays with rap music the DJ isn't that influential isn't seen as that central Uh, the producer might be but the producer in rap music is often viewed the same way as a DJ We'll talk about that more later. I'm sure y'all have thoughts about it. But seriously, uh, going like when it was starting out, it was just a localized experience in the Bronx and part of Manhattan, and really not that often. Um, it could slash should have faded away like a million other different genres. I really should mention other cities have their own musical genres too. I mean, it's not like only New York City, only the Bronx has its own like, musical stuff. Like, there's a lot of other different genres that come up. A lot of different music things that go up. I mean, we're from Louisiana. There's tons of music genres that are kind of localized just to here. Uh, Texas has some, too. Mississippi, back, you know, Backwater Blues. Uh, D.C. Go-Go music. That's a little bit later, but that's like, a, that's like a rap variation. It's pretty much just in Washington, D.C. There's a lot of different places that have a lot of different music. Why does rap grow so much? I want you to discuss that. Like, I want you to discuss that in class. Why, why hip-hop? Why does hip-hop become a dominant cultural art form for a race, nationality, or urban generation, even several generations? What is it that goes on in hip-hop that makes it such a strong art form? Now, something I do need to talk about is the backlash. Um, you've probably heard of the Disco Sucks backlash, um, the idea that, you know, disco sucks. Disco is not a good genre. Disco is an awful music form. It, it, it's silly. It's, it's bad. It's dumb. Uh, there was a, I believe it was a baseball game where they had like a record-burning party. What you need to get about disco sucks. It's a backlash against disco. Not for aesthetic purposes, but a lot of times it's for who it represents. Remember, a lot of people being involved in disco are people of color. They're LGBTQ people. And so when you have this idea that disco sucks, it's kind of reiterating masculinity, whiteness, this sort of shtick. But if you look at this picture, I I see one black person. Well, the rest of it is just white dudes, and they're having, like, rock and roll shirts on. And so there's this idea that it's kind of, like, reiterating this sort of, you know, cisgender masculine, white thing. And this is kind of part of the malaise of the 70s in general. Um, The 70s are a hard time for a lot of different reasons. Um, 70s are a pretty tough time uh, for the country in general, not just African-Americans. Watergate erodes trust in the government. Uh, Before Watergate, most Americans trusted the federal government. Like the, The approval ratings of the federal government were fairly high. It drops after Watergate, and it never comes back. Also, there's a very stagnant economy going on in the 1970s. If you go over one picture, you know, it's a very hard economy. People are being hurted, not just black people, across the board, things are not going great for the economy. You have things like stagflation, which is stagnant wages and inflation. Uh, divorce is on the rise. Actually, your highest divorce rate comes in the 70s. It's just a very blah time. It's just this idea that economics are rough. It's just a very hard time for the country. And this is kind of where I get into my thoughts about it, but escapism becomes kind of popular in the late 70s. Uh, it's the reason why I think early rap would gain a national audience. I mean, you compared to disco, which, okay, disco is an escape. You know, the idea of going to the disco, like someone like Saturday Night Fever, he's a blue-collar guy, but, you know, if you dance to the disco, you, you own the world. Yes, I know, quote-unquote, disco sucks, and disco's considered too gay or too color, you know, too non-white, but it's still a form of escape. The idea that you can go to the disco and dance the night away, or likewise, another escapism that comes in the late 70s, which is very popular, is Star Wars. And yes, I am linking Star Wars with rap music. Sue me. You can. It's just my belief. Star Wars is popular because it's escapism. It's a very traditional story told through very special and fancy special effects, very fancy special effects. But it's a very traditional story. It's this idea that there is escapism, and I would argue that hip hop is kind of escapism too. You know, it lets young black kids in the Bronx with limited options make something of themselves. You know, you don't have to necessarily be musically talented or classically trained to be really good at rapping. Like, you don't have to know how to play an instrument to become a great DJ. You don't, know how to re- you don't have to know how to read music to rap. I mean, everybody can make up rhymes and insult people. I mean, seriously. You go to any high school, anywhere, like, people are going to do that. People are just going to bust each other's chops. People are going to make up funny rhymes. People are going to do that sort of thing. And although they're not getting rich yet, you know, being in a rap thing was a lot safer than being in a game. I, I, I can't iterate this enough. The, the South Bronx is a very rough place in the 70s. And this is kind of a, a rose busting out of the concrete. You know, the broken concrete, something is coming out of it. And I, there's stuff in rap music which really resonates with a broader audience. Now, the golden age of hip hop. Sorry, the early, sorry, not the golden age of hip-hop. The end of early hip-hop comes in 1979, ironically when it gains national attention with Sugar Hill Records, which I'll be talking about a lot more next week. But the thing I want you to think about as we get into discussions is, number one, why rap music? Why has it had such a long... long-lasting impact? Why has it been able become so dominant and pretty much I don't want to say unchanging It's clearly it's clearly you know evolved and genres have changed the way the genre works changed but it's it's a very powerful central genre why does it resonate why does it go from this small little thing to something broad to the fact that nowadays like y'all were born, to rap music that, like, so you were born at a time where, when I started, like, was really getting into rap music when I was in high school and college, and now it's still like a pretty dominant genre. Like, what is it about that? Also, I want you to think about I- I- in cultural studies and cultural history. We always talk about the quote-unquote big three: race, class, gender. How does rap music fit into those three? Where does rap music fit into race? class, and gender. Because it's a little bit more complex. If you look at somebody like Motown, Barry Gordy, he is making very middle class records, like, super middle class records. Very broad audience. Rap music, it's almost like the middle class doesn't exist. I can't really think of any middle class rappers. It's either like, underclass, you know, super poor, or super opulent rich. There's really nothing in between. Um... Also, rap music is dominated by African Americans, which we've talked about quite a bit. But also think about gender dynamics. Uh, we're going to talk about that more later when we talk about you know women in rap music. But like, rap is a very male dominant genre. I'm not saying there are no female rappers, but generally female rappers like sexuality, sex appeal is a huge part of it. Um, I mean, maybe not early on with something like. Salt and Pepper or Queen Latifah, but nowadays, like Megan Thee Stallion or um, Nicki Minaj, Cardi B, like sexuality is a huge part of it. Not in a way that, I mean, yes, male rappers talk about sex, but not in the same way that a female rapper does. And there's not too many female rappers that are so long lasting. Kind of get into that. What, what is it about that? Uh, Like I said, these are kind of broad questions. We're not going to answer them all today by any sense, but uh, that does it for week one. So hope you all enjoy this. Looking forward to y'all's discussions. Uh, You don't really have any reading this week. Uh, The quiz is pretty basic, so just have fun with it. All right, talk to y'all later.